Do you take out your Bibles and open them to 2 Corinthians once again, chapter 11? before you again, as we sit here together worshiping you, thinking about you, opening your word, Father, we ask that you will help us, Father, to, to carry on through the rest of this hour, to focus on you and your word, and uh, to desire to hear from you. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts through your word. We ask, Lord, that we be challenged by your word. We ask, Lord, that you would change us by the truth of the word of God. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. Not only, Lord, that we'd be willing to do good and kind things for others, but, Lord, that we'd have the proper attitude, the proper attitude towards others, the proper attitude towards our circumstances, even the proper attitude about ourselves and the way that we think about ourselves. We ask, Lord, that we would be able to live our lives in a way that you truly are central to every aspect of our life that Christ will be an all-consuming passion of ours, and that we would understand what that means and how that's to be lived out. We thank you, Lord, for your incredible patience with us. We know, Lord, that we fail you. Maybe we can say that we fail you often. We know, Lord, that you forgive us because of Christ. We know you've given us your spirit to help us along the way. And we ask, Lord, that indeed that you would do that. Because, Father, we are weak and we are in need of your help. Father, we know that we need to be different. We need to change more than the changes that have already taken place. And even though, Father, we at times desire this, we can resist this as well. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to be much more compliant to your word, to be submissive to you and to what you've said. And always we thank you, Father, for being here with us this morning, for your presence, for your blessing. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 7, Paul says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I, because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Now again, we know what we're in the middle of. We know what Paul is doing. He is, again, desperately, in a sense, trying to inform these believers in the church at Corinth to take a step back and to evaluate these intruders, these individuals who call themselves in a sense super apostles, and he wants them to understand what these men are doing, what they are about, and he wants them to take action because they are in danger. They are in danger of drifting from the Lord, of going in the wrong direction, of allowing themselves to be led in the wrong direction. And even though the methodology that these individuals are using, part of that which is to undermine Paul or to uh, diminish who Paul is, 
to put him down and to kind of brag about themselves, Paul does defend himself to a degree, but as we pointed out several times before, Paul does so without exalting himself. He does point out the facts that are true about him. He wants them to understand what is true about these super apostles. He is seeking, I believe, to make sure that there's nothing he says that can allow a foundation to be laid to where there is some kind of special group at any time within the church that should be honored in a particular way where there is no accountability uh, and individuals are kind of um, not quite worshipped, but maybe reverenced in the wrong way. And of course, he includes himself in that group as an apostle. With all of his authority, he does not want to present himself as being like the guy and it's about him and about these super apostles. It is about the scripture. It's about God. It's about the attitudes that we are to have. And so Paul, again, is this great apostle, a man who has been left for dead several times because he's a Christian. He's been persecuted. Uh, he has lost practically everything that he owns. Uh, he has been tortured several times uh, because of Christ. He's, he's lived this consistent life. And this man, this Christian man, this mature Christian man, we need to listen to him. But as we listen to him, we need to, again, recognize how he has lived. To see that his life lends a great deal of credibility to what he's saying. That he is living out the Christian life. And that there is much here for us to imitate, to draw from, when it comes to how we are to grow as believers. So... There's a little bit of cultural background. Some of you may be kind of familiar with this, but there's certain ideas that run through the minds of individuals that Paul wants to take advantage of because of what's happening in the church. And that is this, that there was, it was common for there to be traveling teachers during this time in the Middle East, in many parts of the world, but particularly in the Middle East. And it's not the only place it took place, but these individuals would go from place to place and they would try, in a sense, to get a gathering, to get students to follow them, and they would live off of these individuals. These individuals would pay uh, for the privilege of, of being under the tutelage of this individual. Uh, and that was a very common thing during, during those times. Um, some of those men would, uh, would beg uh, in, to a degree. Maybe they'd find a noble way to do it, but they would, they would beg so that uh, they, they did not want to work with their hands. There were some who did work with their hands, but that they normally did not do that. They would not try to engage in manual work. Um, but even if they did engage in manual work, the ideal was for them to make a good living from just teaching. So the more famous a teacher was, the more well-known he was, then the more he could charge, the more that students would want to attach themselves to him. They would say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a student of so-and-so. That would, somehow that would bring them prestige. We do the same thing to a degree in our country, and depending on which, I guess, discipline you may be studying at a university, if, there are, if there's a philosopher, a professor, a, a medical doctor who is teaching and he's taking you under his wing, anyone who's kind of well-known, if that individual becomes a personal mentor to us and we attach ourselves to him, we believe, and it, probably, it may do this, it kind of opens doors, uh, maybe later on, uh, that, would not, that would be closed to you because you associate yourself with this individual and they're associated with you. So it's not, it's not necessarily bad, but that, that's, that's what happens. That's, that's how the world knows. That's why people sometimes say it's not so much what you know, it's who you know. Um, you know, you're being well connected. That can also be really bad. That can be what we call the good old boy network. 
Uh, and so that can get you in trouble as well. But that's kind of the idea among these traveling uh, teachers. So if you, were, if you were privileged then to attach yourself to someone who is well-known, then you would consider it a privilege to pay their fee, which I guess is just the best, is when you can get people to give you money and they consider it a privilege. <laughs> so uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of the idea. So these men that have in, intruded into this church, that may be kind of what's behind what's going on here. You know, they see an opportunity for them to move in here and maybe to gain financially from these individuals. So with that in mind, that then makes a, uh, a sharper contrast between how Paul lives his life as an apostle, because to a degree, that's the kind of individual he is. Now, it's very specific. He's going around and he's preaching the gospel of Christ. So he's teaching this, this religion, this, this philosophy of life, uh, seeking to establish these churches, and that's how he makes his living. He goes there, and, and the, the people, you know, they would, they would take care of his food and his lodging and, and th that kind of thing. And he, he would, you know, establish this church and disciple, and then he would move on to another area and do the same thing. So there's some similarities in the way that you lived. But Paul also, at times, would make sure that he would not take a dime from the community he was in. And that's what he did with the Corinthians. Now, it doesn't tell us all the reasons why he did that. But he believed it was best and we can see some of the reasons why, uh, as we just kind of see how this thing plays out, why he did not do that. And I think it will become crystal clear towards the end. So again, in verse 7, he's basically asking this, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? So Paul is, is bringing up this idea that he's willing to be abased. He, he's asking if it was a sin for him to lower himself so that he could elevate them by the preaching of the gospel free of charge. They could not accuse him of that. 2 Corinthians 2.17, he says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. So he, he separates himself from those who were trying to only make a living from teaching the word of God. He says, I'm not peddling that. That's not what, you know, what I'm doing is very different. And, and no one could charge him, at least with any justifying reason, that he was living that way. So he lowered himself, and the idea here is he lowered himself because of his willingness to do manual labor. Now, he's not saying manual labor is a bad thing. But the idea that someone who's a teacher, someone who has the kind of authority that he does, then involving in manual labor would be seen as being humbling, as being degraded. People say, why is he doing that? Be like an individual who's, the, let's say, the president of Harvard, and all of a sudden that individual decides that he's no longer going to take a salary from Harvard, and he's going to, to go back to his old trade, which is a, he's going to be a welder. And he's still going to be the president, but he's going to be a welder. That's how he's going to make his income. He goes, what is he doing that for? You know, there, we, would, we would recognize that. as he, he has prestige here, so he's lowering himself here to be a welder. So again, no one's saying that being a welder is somehow, you know, like someone who just shovels manure. They're not saying that, but the idea of prestige is lost because he's given up the one over the other. In Acts 18, beginning in verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So here we see the background. Paul goes to Corinth, and he is doing manual labor. He's a tent maker. 
And so, that, so he gets involved with these two believers, and because they're all the same trade, he then kind of joins up with them, and that's how he supports himself while he's in the city of Corinth. So Paul's ministry then, in one sense, or in some sense, it's, 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 a, it's modeled after Christ, in the sense that Jesus Christ, who's the eternal Son of God, was willing to humble himself for the sake of fallen mankind. He became a man himself. He assumed the role of a servant and died the shameful, painful death of a convicted criminal. This was self-abasement. We see that in Corinthians. I mean, uh, in Philippians, where it talks about him kind of lowering himself and taking on the form of man. He was lowering himself because he's God. And so he's taking on a human flesh to live as a man with the limitations that man has. Why is he doing that? For our sake. So that's kind of the model that Paul is thinking about. I'm, I'm willing to lower myself for the sake of others. It is truly for them. And, and, if, and again, he believed that was the wisest thing that he could do to help them out. It, it's, we, we do the same kind of thing to a degree. Uh, when I went to Mauritius, you know, I, I didn't go there and I didn't demand a speaker's fee at every Bible study and church I spoke at. I didn't ask for that. I didn't tell them to take an offering for me. Um, I, I don't think any was offered. If it would have been, I would have refused it because the church here sent me there to do that work. And so I was there for five weeks, and the idea was, is what was best for them? Well, in one sense, it would be best really for the poor communities, because many of them were poor, for them not to be shelling out money for this American to come and talk to them about the Bible. That would have detracted from whatever was going on. And so, there's, so now, none of that's in the way. That, that's not an issue. You know, that's being taken care of. I was sent, there was a sending church. I was sent there to do these things. And these things, in essence, then are free of charge. Uh, and so that's kind of the idea that's going on here with Paul. So Paul's saying, if, if he's asking this question, is self-abasement, is it wrong? Because if it was wrong for him to do this, then what would they say about Jesus? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might come rich. And we're familiar with that idea. You know, this idea that, again, as Jesus became a man and lived among us as a man, he did die for us. Christ, being divine, being God, owns everything. Everything belongs to him, and he set all that aside for our sake to die for us, to die in our place. And so we're familiar with that, with that kind of sacrifice, and, of course, being the ultimate sacrifice, and that he was tortured and died for our sake. So there's nothing standing, standing in the way. You know, Christ wasn't living in a, in a, a privileged life, and had a life of ease, and then say, well, this is the way. That's not what he did. He, he lived among, in a sense, the common man, and though he could have come in great riches or could have demanded great riches, he could have said, do you not recognize who I am? I am God. I should be worshipped. And, and he didn't demand any of that because he wanted to make sure that he, he wanted to meet our need, and he was able to do it in that way. So you would think that it would go without saying in the church, but this church, they've been caught up in evaluating value and the worth of ministers by the standards of the world. They've been, they've been caught up in that. The path of self-humiliation for the sake of others is the way of Christ. It is central to the gospel. And so based on this, why would it be wrong for Paul to preach this gospel, the gospel of God in a way that characterized or that was characterized by willing self-abasement? And so we have to ask ourselves how much of our contemporary swagger has been absorbed into the church life and thinking. There are, I hear individuals sometimes in, in various kinds of discussions 
saying things like this. So the phrase would be, well, I am a son of the king and I need to live like a king. And, and in some of these conversations, the idea there is that we are kind of owed a certain degree of prestige and maybe even honor or respect because I'm a child of the king. Now we are a child, a child of the king, that's true. Uh, but not so we can run around and, and get the admiration of men. You know, that's not the idea behind that. But that is sometimes said. Sometimes uh, we, we, you know, pastors have gone through this, and maybe they still do, where there's almost a demand for respect. We can get into all the discussions as to why this has taken place. I'll spare you all that. But we've gone through a time within Christianity, which I think still lingers, where it began to be kind of popular, especially in the early 2000s, especially among larger churches where pastors began to drop the title pastor and they wanted to be referred to as a CEO. And, and the reason for that was, in, in most cases, was that a CEO brings about a certain amount of respect in the business world. And being a pastor has kind of lost its prestige within the community. And so the pastor then wanted to have this prestige so he could minister to others, then began to take on the title of CEO. And I've actually listened to some men scold members of the church because they refer to them as the pastor and tell them, you better refer to me as the CEO and pastor or the CEO of, and then name the church. And I've, I've read as well, as experiencing that in conversations, that kind of thing being done. Why are we so worried about that? So worried that we're not going to be called doctor if we're a doctor. Or some individual who's given an honorary doctorate. This is a discussion sometimes they have in the world. If you give an honorary doctorate, should you then go by doctor? Most would say no. Uh, but there are those who've been given an honorary doctorate, and man, bef before the print is dry on the declaration, their business card says doctor so-and-so. Because in the world, it brings a certain amount of prestige. If it's true, it's true. It just doesn't matter. And within the church, it doesn't matter. We, we, don't, we, we should not view it that way. So it's not that we are embarrassed if somebody maybe has a PhD or is a doctor of whatever uh, who's in the ministry. That's great. But we're not looking and saying that's the only way that we, uh, that we evaluate someone's worth or value. Or maybe that somebody is of greater value because they have it or whatever the case may happen to be. But see, this church was used to that. Uh, that's how they are making these evaluations. So Paul's kind of calling them out on that when he brings this issue up. So it's not so he can brag that, look how humble I am. I'm, I'm working with my hands. I am great. He, he never says that and doesn't even lend himself to, to thinking that. I think I've told you before, you know, there's different ways to, uh, to get prestige, to build our ego. Um, and we want others to, I guess, recognize us. Um, I think I, I've shared with this to you once before. There was an event that took place. I was in my... I guess I was in my early 30s when this happened. It's the, I would consider this to be the most embarrassing moment in my entire life. And no one knew about it when it happened. It was the most embarrassing. It was the most shameful thing I think has ever happened in my life as, as a human being, and especially as a Christian. It was one that was so devastating that um, I shared this with no one. Uh, I don't even think I told Cindy, probably for 10 years. It was so bad. What it was, it was I was a jail chaplain when this took place. I had been a chaplain for several years at a jail in Hawaii. And what, what we did, one of the things we did to kind of promote the ministry and raise funds, we put on a banquet. And uh, on Oahu, we would, we would have so many people coming, we would have two banquets. 
And so we would have different guest speakers, and normally what we would do is we would have inmates come up uh, who had become believers when they were in, in prison, uh, men that maybe we had discipled, and then they had gotten out and were doing well, and they would come back and talk about you know, how, what the ministry meant to them there in prison, and that prison could be a very valuable place because the gospel is being preached. And there's this one individual who he was really well-spoken. Uh, he could speak really well. Uh, and, he, and he really had the rapt attention of the individuals. And there was about a thousand people at this banquet. And uh, he happened to be an individual that I had led to the Lord and I had discipled him. And so he's given his testimony. And to my shame, I'm waiting for him to drop the name. My name. How grateful he is. However he was going to say it, that God used Bob Dimmitt to lead him to the Lord or to disciple him or whatever it happened to be. It never happened. He talked about the Lord and he talked about what God did in his life, which was, that's the whole point. That was all great. And I sat there the whole time waiting, waiting with great anticipation for my name to be said. I wasn't going to stand up and bow. You know, I was even going to pretend to be humble. You know, just kind of drop my head a little bit, you know, when he said my name and the whole thing. I was waiting for that moment. Never came. And when he finished, I felt disappointed that he didn't say my name. And then it hit me. Man, it was like just, it was almost as if God had said over the PA system, by the way, folks, Bob Dimmitt sitting there waiting for his name to be said because he wants glory. And his name wasn't said, and now he's disappointed. Now, God did not do that, but it, it felt that way. I felt a rush. I felt like I was, had turned several shades of red. I, I, was, I did not know what to say. I was, I mean, I was just, I guess you would say maybe broken would be a good word to say. But I was, but I was just so embarrassed that I was thinking that the whole time this guy was talking. I mean, it just, it, it just, it was almost as if I was just this little snot-nosed, selfish kid who only thinks about himself. And I felt like I was eight years old and had gotten in trouble from my dad. It was just unbelievable. It was a great moment, actually. The Lord I used it in my life. It was great that that happened. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm grateful. I wasn't grateful at that moment. You know, like I said, I was embarrassed and then ashamed. And it was just, it was devastating to me. But you see, I put stock in what others might think. I had imagined what others would think about me. That others would be sitting, oh yeah, Bob Dimmitt, yeah. Yeah, we need to get him to come speak. Oh, I, need to, I need to go shake his hand, you know, whatever goes with that. That's so horrible. I just, I loathe that, you know. And pride, that kind of pride, you know, you struggle with that your whole life. The struggle may be a little less because it goes away, but it never goes away completely. And so I'm, I, we need to be on our guard, especially guys. I don't think, it's not that women don't have that issue, but men, I know we do. Uh, and so you just, you need to watch out for that because it can be undermining and weaken your, your, your walk with the Lord. And so Paul is aware of that. So he's out there throwing this out there, but he's not doing this again because he wants praise. He doesn't, but he definitely wants these individuals to recognize this and to make a judgment call. Paul repeatedly sets kind of two things or two structures of thought in contrast. He's pointed out to them that the gospel of Christ was given without price. 
that, but the corrupted doctrine really of the Judaizers comes at a great cost. His, he talks about his self-abasement and these false teachers, he contrasts it with their self-glorification. He, he talks about his message of emancipation and how these individuals were really enslaving the community. So what was Paul's strategy in all this? How was, how was all this going to play out? Well, he goes in and tells us. Verse 8, he says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and, and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So he just tells them the, the simple truth that while he was serving the Corinthians, when he was there, whenever he had a need, he never approached them at all. Not once. He always got help from others. Now Paul wasn't taking money from other churches without their consent. They knew what he was doing, but they were sending monetary gifts to Paul to do this work in Corinth. So he was serving their church without serving them. Kind of like, again, when I was sent to Mauritius, this church was supporting me while I was serving others when I was over there. That's kind of the idea. So we're, we're very used to that now, but that wasn't a common thing then. And the reason, one of the reasons why Paul did this is because he recognized that sometimes people have a hard time grasping the freeness of grace. And we want others to know that. And that's why it, it, it's important uh, that sometimes when it comes to traveling, what we call traveling evangelists, and we can talk about that another day, uh, but many of them, when they do this, you know, they take offerings in other churches. I believe that there may be some points in time where these guys, you know, they need to evaluate these churches they speak in and maybe tell them, no, I, I, I don't want any offering taken. I think that would blow the mind of the church. In fact, you might even have a few people who say, wow, the gospel must be real. You know? When I was a kid, just to be honest, every evangelist I ever met, because it was kind of a real popular thing back then when I was a kid, all of them except for one, you could tell, were well-paid and well-fed. Because they were well-fed. And so the idea is, is that we, we want to make sure that, that we recognize that so that if we are even blessed by those who appreciate maybe our spiritual help to them, we want to make sure that in no way is it anything like that tied to the message of Christ. And so Paul, I believe, really wanted to model this for these Corinthians for many reasons. We need to understand that we are obligated to all men under which the grace of God places us and the privilege of sharing by fiscal means in the evangelization and church planning that that really are the responsibilities of all Christians. We need to recognize how the money works in all of that and understand that we are obligated to do these kinds of things. Paul says, if the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. So he says this boasting of mine will not be stopped. The Amplified Version says, my boast of independence, meaning his independence from them, should not be debarred, silenced, or checked in the regions of Achaia, which is most of Greece. So what is he boasting about? Well, I think that if we follow the context, he is boasting about the fact that he refused to take funds from the Corinthians. And that fact was made known to other churches. In other words, he offered the gospel free of charge to the Corinthians. He says it will not be silenced or stopped. It's a very strong term in the Greek language that he uses. So Paul did not bring up this matter of money in order to boast about himself. Rather, he was using every means possible 
to silence the boasting of the Judaizers because Paul knew that not a single person could accuse him of covetousness or selfishness. But there's another point we're going to get to in just a second. Why did Paul refuse support? Why did Paul boast in his own integrity? Why did he oppose the false teachers? First of all, he had a deep love for the Corinthians. As a founder of the Church of Corinth, Paul was concerned for their spiritual warfare, welfare. He was jealous for their spiritual purity. And so he tells us in verse 12, And what I do, meaning ministering to them without burning them in any way, what I do, I will continue to do. Why is he going to do it that way? In order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. So Paul is using every means possible to silence the boasting of the Judaizers. It's basically this. Paul's opponents long for the opportunity to boast that they had ministered in Corinth on the same terms that he did. But as long as Paul is refusing money, something those men would never do, such a desire will go unfulfilled, for they were financial parasites on the church. In other words, the moment they try to take any kind of credit for ministering in Corinth the way Paul did, all Paul has to ask is, did, did you meet their needs? Did, were they a burden to you financially? Because I wasn't. I came to you and charged you nothing for the spiritual work that I did. Are they doing the same? I did that so that you would be exalted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to recognize the difference here that I'm not taking money from you, and they are. And that says something about the condition of what's going on here. They would never be able to do it that way for them. Something in a small degree, to a small way, kind of happened within Christianity as a whole several years ago. It used to be a very common thing among almost all churches that if they recorded the message of the pastor, whether it was made on cassette tape or maybe it was made on a CD or, or whatever it had to be, you know, you could purchase. We even did that. It was a lot. It was cheaper because I'm not very well known. But it was the idea was it was it, you could you could pick up these CDs or tapes. You could whether it's two dollars, five dollars, fifteen dollars. People could buy CDs and tapes of sermons, and people did it all the time. I've I've purchased those things, and several years ago, and I don't know how many exactly, but I know at least two men who started this. They had huge ministries. It's John Piper and John MacArthur, and all of a sudden they announced. Every single resource that involved the teaching of the Word of God was not free. That caused a huge ripple within Christianity because there were a lot of ministries that were kind of banking on that. Now, I'm not saying it was good or bad that they were doing that. There's no judgment there because there was, there was no, they, they weren't being charlatans about it. I do think some maybe were a little excessive what they charged. You know, back in the day when you, were, you could buy a cassette for 38 cents and then you sell the message for $15, it's a pretty big profit margin. But nonetheless, the bottom line was within a matter of months, a majority of all ministries suddenly made all of their resources free. You still have to pay for books, but when it came to all the audio stuff, it was free. And other things that did cost money, the price dropped. That was a great thing. That was fantastic. It was good for the body. It was good for the unbelieving world. And so in a small way, when others say, well, 
You know, am I charging you? Everything I'm giving to you is free of charge. Why are they charging you money if they trust God? And, you know, and that's kind of what's going on here. And so that, that would allow them to recognize the difference on another degree between himself and these intruders. This is what Paul wanted to happen. Eventually what he wanted to happen was that the Corinthians would wake up to the fact that these false teachers, unlike Paul, were actually more interested in the money of the Corinthians than in their spiritual welfare. Although Paul was being forced to boast foolishly about his own ministry, it was his consistent honesty and integrity, the way that he had conducted himself around the Corinthians, that would silence his critics and answer the charge against him. These new preachers wanted to be recognized as super apostles, but in reality, they could not consider themselves to be Paul's equals. They weren't willing to suffer, as Jesus had, or as Paul had, to present the gospel free of charge. So that is the difference. So what we, need to, what we take away from this is this. Is in the, once again, in a general way, it's not about us. It's not about our prestige. It's not about how we value ourselves. It's not how we even think others value us. We, we literally should not really care much about that. Now, do I want others to respect me? Yes, only so they'll listen to what I have to say. I, I don't want it because I just want their respect. I don't want them to do this or do that for me for all these other kinds of reasons. It, it is about the gospel. When it comes to you and I being uh, used by God in the lives of others, whether you teach Sunday school, whether you serve as a deacon, whether you make quilts or serve in the nursery, we should never be doing those things in a sense anticipating being recognized. Now, most of the time, we would say, well, I'm not thinking about that. But how it comes out, because you know we can kind of fool ourselves. The way it comes out, is let's just say we did this and we have a Sunday where we're going to recognize those who do certain kinds of service in the church. And let's say we overlook you. We, people make mistakes. We, that wasn't our intent. And most of us would be horrified if we overlook somebody. But if you are overlooked and you get a bad attitude because of that, feel like you've been disrespected, when no one really notices you, they don't really love you, or the countless things we can say. You have an issue with you and the Lord. That's all there is to it. Remember one time a professor asked in a Bible college to his students, he says, if, he says, if you were asked to teach a Sunday school class, some have said that the worst class you can imagine is a class containing fourth and fifth grade boys. Perhaps that is. I don't know. But you were asked to teach that group. And let's say you teach that group faithfully for a year. And those boys come consistently. And there's even changes in their behavior. And no one even ever thanks you. No one, even ever, no one ever encourages you in doing that. You just, it was almost as if you're not even noticed. And you're asked to do it again. Would you do it again? And if you wouldn't, why not? And he asked the question because he was a pastor of a church and he knew that there were times that people, because they felt and again, no one's excusing the fact that the person should not have been encouraged. No one's saying that's right. But who are we serving? I think we can look at Paul's life and say, this man was serving Christ. And it was all about Christ and really these people and what was best for them. That's all that mattered. Do we still think so much about ourselves that we get caught up because we haven't been recognized? because no one said thank you, or whatever the case may happen to be. 
We're so, it's almost as if we're unforgiving and the pride is just, is just exploding out of us. So again, without ever excusing the wrong that maybe others have done, and maybe the actual wrong they've done to us, it's not about us. It really is about others. And you know, perhaps the Lord allowed you to go unrecognized. And unbeknownst to you, there's a couple people who actually know that you were unrecognized. And the way you handle that or don't handle that may have a great impact on their lives as a believer. And if you mishandle that, maybe what you're teaching them is that your attitude was the correct one and that it really is about you to a degree. Or maybe we should show them humble Christian maturity and that it really is okay because I truly do serve the Lord. And it's not only is it not expressed in my attitude, it's not even in my head because I love these boys, if it's fourth and fifth grade boys, and I love the Lord. And I trust that we'll evaluate ourselves in that way. Because remember, like I mentioned before, when I was sitting there at that banquet, no one was aware that the entire time that guy was speaking, I was committing sin against God. Because I wanted glory to some degree. Just a little bit. I didn't want to be glorified like Christ, but I wanted a little bit. I wanted what I thought was mine. None of it belonged to me at all. It was actually a privilege that the Lord allowed me to lead that man to Christ and to disciple him. It was a privilege. And so I trust that you will evaluate, ask the Lord to help search your heart in that way, to make sure that you're not even looking for the glory you think that belongs to you. You'll be a lot happier if you just give it up. You really will be. It's very freeing when you no longer try to feed your ego. It is great. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your love, your kindness, your willingness to forgive us, to overlook our foolishness. We know, Lord, that at times our pride needs to be deflated. We know, Lord, that there needs to be a pin that bursts the balloon of our ego. And Father, at times that we even feel justified because we're looking only for a little bit of glory, maybe just a little bit of recognition that we somehow believe that we're owed or that we deserve. And Lord, we know that the evil one can use that to cause us to become cynical or to cause us to become bitter towards others or even towards you. And Father, we, we want to be washed clean of that. So I pray, Lord, you would help each one of us to search our hearts, not just now at this moment, perhaps maybe later in the day or, a, or a, a, in a moment when we're just along with you and the word and we have time to think deeply about really how we tick and what it is we're looking for in life. I pray, Lord, that for those who desire to come clean in this way, that, Lord, you would shine a spotlight on the attitude that maybe wants the believed and perceived glory that is owed them. And I pray, Lord, that they would become disgusted with themselves. At the same time, recognize, Lord, that you forgive and you have already given us all the recognition that we already need because the moment that we leave this life and enter into your presence will be recognized immediately because of Christ. And for that, we thank you. 
Help us, Father, to realize that when we say that we're undeserving of anything and undeserving of salvation, that it's not just a cliche, that it's not just some kind of pseudo form of humility, but Lord, that we'll be able to speak it from the bottom of our hearts and that you'll free us, Father, from the bondage of pride and ego and the seeking of esteem and value from others. I pray, Lord, that if we recognize this in others, which sometimes can be easily seen because it's in us, help us not to be harsh, cruel, or mean. Help us, Father, to pray for them. If, perhaps, there's a moment that we have, in a sense, maybe earned the right to speak to them, allow us to do so, Father, with great humility and humbleness. Because it seems that when we deal with our pride and our ego, great care needs to be taken because we can be so easily offended. Thank you, Father, again, for loving us despite the shameful attitudes that we sometimes have. We pray, O Lord, that you would strip us of these things so that we may truly be of great value to you and others so that, it will, that Christ will truly be seen and we will be free to make it about Christ and the gospel. Thank you, Father, for the confidence that we can have in you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.